This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week, we have a bunch of new news, including a new membrane wing to dinosaur, just like E. Chi, a bunch of other new finds, and some exhibits. We also have an interview with Brian Eng, who has made some of our favorite paleo art. And if you follow his Patreon, you know that as we speak, he's making videos using some puppets that he built by himself, <laughs> which is pretty awesome. We talk about that a little bit. And we also have Dinosaur of the Day, Talarurus, kind of a tongue twister. Mm -hmm. But before we get into all of that, we'd like to thank some of our patrons who help keep our podcast running. And we just had a couple new patrons join, which is amazing. Yeah, it's very exciting. Yeah, and the patronage is what's keeping us going. So. High fives all around <laughs> between the two of us, but still. Yes. So this week, we'd like to thank Kyle, Brendan Kavanov, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, Remy Rodriguez, Marcy. Rohan, Bradley, Bilal, Scully, Avery, Crispy, Joaquin, Jeb from Arkansas, Aiden James, Albertosaurus, and Alan. Yeah, again, thank you so much. We really appreciate all your support, and we could not keep this podcast going without you. So if you want to join this awesome growing community, then check out our page, patreon.com slash inodino. And thanks to everyone who bought our merch, too, because that also helps. Oh, yeah. And it's still available. Jumping into the news, we're going to kick it off with our new dinosaur. Our first new dinosaur came out a little bit ago, but remember we had no access to the non-open access stuff. So this is the first one, and it's a huge discovery. So it was written by Min Wang and others, including Jingmei O'Connor, who we talked to recently. And when we interviewed her, we talked a little bit about E and how we didn't know much about its wings because they were poorly preserved and we only had the one specimen. But now we have another one. It's not another E, but it's another Scansoriopterigid, which is really hard to say. It's the group that has weird, really long fingers. And we found them before we knew that any of them had this crazy extra wrist bone like E has. And a quick reminder, E is also known as E. Chi. Really, the genus name is just E. But since the whole genus name being a single syllable is really weird for a dinosaur, because usually it's, it's like something Saurus or Venator or like these longer names, then when it's just E, I always feel like I need to say E. Chi, which is the genus and species. And E means wing and Chi means strange. <laughs> so it translates to strange wing. I think it's one of the best dinosaur names ever. And one of the shortest for sure. Yeah, it is. It's one of the only genus names in all of the animal kingdom that's only two letters, which is a pretty cool claim to fame. So the new dinosaur is named Amboteryx longibrachium, and Amboteryx is Latin for both wings, and they wanted to use Teryx to reference the pterosaur-like membrane wings. Oh yeah, this is the one where the headlines were all bat-like dinosaur found. Yeah, I, I don't love the bat comparison, but I'll get to that more later. <laughs> and then longibrachium is for its long forelimbs, so specifically its forelimbs are about 1.3 times the length of its hind limbs. So in other words, it's getting more bird-like, right? And you're getting those longer wings. You don't really need legs anymore. So there you go. One of the things that distinguishes it from Yi is the fact that it has those longer forelimbs potentially than its hind limbs too. Because a lot of things that we found on Amboteryx is different than what we found on E, So it's a little bit hard to make comparisons, but that's one where they do overlap so we can see differences. A farmer found Amboteryx in 2017 in the Liaoning province in northeastern China. Every time we do one of these Chinese discoveries, 
the difference in time between like discovery to publication is always like an order of magnitude faster than North America. I feel like it's like the US is one of the slowest. Canada seems to be pretty quick. And then China is just like cranking out papers like no tomorrow. It's pretty amazing. The find is significantly more complete than E, which is excellent because there were some big missing pieces for E. And they found most of an articulated skeleton. Really, it's just missing the right leg, most of its fingers, and then one styliform element, they call it. The styliform element is that crazy wrist bone that sticks out 90 degrees from the rest of the arm. And they think that there was a membrane covering it to make that really cool, unique wing on both E and Ambotarix. Unfortunately, the skull is very poorly preserved. And I really mean very poorly because it's already pretty squashed to the point where they tried to do histology and they couldn't really do it because the bones weren't in good enough condition. But the skull, it almost looks like it's a decayed pressed flower or something. It's like it's smashed and then there's like huge pieces missing. It's like there's an outline that's fading away or something. So you can measure the overall height and length of this squashed thing, but you really can't see much of any detail to it. Fortunately, E did have a pretty good skull, so we can kind of piece them together that way. Just like E, Ambotarix includes some membranous tissues around the styliform element, and it also has a lot of dino fuzz and gut contents. Ooh, I like gut contents. Yeah. So in some ways, it's poorly preserved, but in other ways, it's amazing. <laughs> Both Ambotarix and E are about 160 million years old, also known as the late Jurassic, and they're from similar areas, so we expect them to be pretty close relatives. And when they did the phylogeny, they did find that they were close relatives, so we can do some of the inferences where we're missing pieces of one and try to fill in gaps on the other. Like Sabrina said, a lot of people describe Ambotarix as having bat-like wings, which is sort of true in that they have a membrane. We're used to the membrane on birds being covered with feathers, but really if you pluck all the feathers out of a bird, it's not that much different <laughs> than what you see here. Basically everything that flies needs to have some kind of membrane and then in birds they're covered in feathers. But bats have their fingers of their hand spread out and then the membrane goes in between like the thumb and all the other fingers to make the wing. And it's just like a massive hand. If you imagine like extending your fingers out and then putting a membrane in between them, that's your whole wing. So Almost like a webbed hand. Yeah, exactly. They don't really have much on their arm at all. It's like just a hand has gotten massive. And then pterosaurs, on the other hand... <laughs> <laughs> they have their fingers that are all kind of extended in the same direction and then the membrane goes out from the end of its longest finger one of its fingers is way longer than the others and then connects back to its body this ambotarix has that extra styliform element which sticks out at a 90 degree angle from its fingers and then we think the membrane goes around both the styliform element and the basically one row of really long fingers. So it's a little bit more like a pterosaur, in my opinion, than it is like a bat because they have the same weird evolution of super long fingers rather than like spread out more evenly length fingers. But I think most people don't really know what a pterosaur wing is like. So for pop culture, it makes more sense to compare it to a bat. Plus it doesn't have feathers, which makes a bat-like, but also pterosaur-like. Anyway, they believe it was an adult or a nearly an adult when it died based on the fact that it had a fused pygo style, which is pretty cool because a lot of times we've been talking lately about how we find these dinosaurs and then we find out it's a juvenile. And we're like, oh, we don't really know how big it got. It's kind of a shame. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but this, you know, is probably about full size. They estimate its full size is about 32 centimeters or one foot in body length. So decent size. I was going to say that's pretty small. Yeah, it's true. For a dinosaur, it's small. For a flying creature, it's not that small. True. They estimate that it weighed about 306 grams or about two-thirds of a pound, which is, you know, bigger than your average bird you'd see around your house probably, but definitely not on the larger sides of birds because birds get up into the tens of pounds. So not huge. It would be pretty big for a bat though, but we do have way bigger. Just Google the large flying fox. Oh, yeah which is one of my all-time favorite animals. And I'm not going to say anything more about it other than Google it because I love bats so much that I will stay on this tangent for a long time. It's right up there with dinosaurs. Yeah, they're pretty great. As far as living animals go, I think bats are my favorite. Not birds? No, definitely not birds. Bats are cooler. <laughs> <laughs> so on to Ambotarix's gut contents. They had both gastroliths, which are good for grinding up plants, but they also found bone fragments in there. 
really strange combination. I can't remember ever seeing gastroliths and bone fragments before yeah. in a single gut contents. Doesn't mean it hasn't happened, but I don't remember it. That means that it was likely an omnivore, obviously, if it's eating things with bones <laughs> as well as grinding up plants. And they said that other scansoriopterygids have diverse teeth that might mean they were omnivores. But to me, looking at their teeth, a lot of the other ones look just like crazy sharp and like huge. But I guess it doesn't matter that much. I mean, if you're picking off leaves, I don't know. I'm thinking like Diplodocus, you don't need like a dental battery right. if you're going to just swallow it. So it seems like it'd be hard to tell when something has omnivorous-like teeth. You really just need the things for catching the prey more than anything. Then if you have a gizzard with a bunch of gastrolis, you could take care of whatever you don't chew in your mouth later. So anyway. Its toes are long and flexible, so it probably could have perched pretty well, but unfortunately, its wings might not have been strong enough to sustain flight for long, which kind of led them down this path of, well, maybe it was a glider, and then Jingmei O'Connor said it might have been a, quote, creepy-looking dinosaur squirrel, end quote, and then basically used its wings to fly in between branches. <laughs> so that is kind of terrifying. Good description. <laughs> yeah. Based on some of its relative skull, they were definitely really creepy looking. IVPP made a really great video showing how it might have glided down from the trees. It basically glides off a branch onto a little fallen log that's pretty cool to look at. And in it, you can see their recreation of the dino fuzz, which is a pretty neat part of it. We think pterosaurs might have had dino fuzz too. I guess not dino fuzz or Taro fuzz. fuzz. Yeah. <laughs> but in the fossil, you could only see fuzz kind of on the head and neck and upper arm is sort of where you see the fuzz sticking out. There's just a little spot with preserved sort of fuzz impression <laughs> or feathers, you could call it, but they're pretty proto-feathery. They're not really big, panaceous feathers. And then in the recreation, they kind of matched that up. They had longer fuzz on its head and neck, although... To my looking at it, it looked like the base of the neck and the upper arm in the fossil itself looks like it might have had really long filaments on it, which they didn't really put into the recreation, probably because it looks kind of weird and is strange to have really long filaments on like the leading edge <laughs> of a wing, basically. But it's always hard to say exactly how these things come out during the preservation. Like the wings are kind of smashed around too, so they can't really see they still can't really see exactly how the membrane would have covered the wing that's what we're really hoping for is one where it has the wing stretched out like we actually had last week with that archaeopteryx relative but we didn't get that this time unfortunately doesn't mean next time we won't yeah it's true it's only been a couple years since we found e and we already have another really great specimen so who's to say we won't get another one fill in another piece in the recreation, they also gave it four long tail feathers that stick out of the pygo style, kind of evenly spaced, which I think makes it look pretty cute, as long as you don't look at his freaky face. <laughs> I think that's probably based on his close relative, Epidexeteryx, because that one is preserved really nicely with this mini fan. I say mini because it only has four feathers, but it's like almost the length of the rest of its body. So they're like really narrow, long feathers. They're pretty cool. One thing I also thought was interesting in their recreation, they didn't show it folding its wings at all, either while it was perched or after it landed. My guess is just that they didn't want to animate that because they don't know how it would have worked since we don't know how to deal with this crazy wrist bone sticking out at a 90 degree angle. And that's not what the paper was about. But if it did have to leave its wings out at all times, you could see how this is not the type of wing that won out in the evolutionary race because it's just kind of stuck permanently with its arms sticking all the way out. It almost looks like it's flexing. <laughs> it's got these huge wings, you know, and its arms are so long and it has to kind of hold them in front of it. Although the fossil itself kind of has its arms folded, the right arm in particularly looks reasonably lifelike, like it might have been folded while it was alive. But it's always possible that a skeleton was pushed into a position it wouldn't have adapted while it was alive, kind of like all of those death pose theropods we see where like the head is curved almost all the way back to its hips. We know that T-Rex probably wasn't walking around like that, but we've found quite a few specimens that look like that. So it's always hard to piece together how these fossils match with their living positions. The authors disagree with a previous assertion that 
scansoria opterigids use their longest finger to dig insects out of tight spaces because they think it makes more sense that it's just kind of included in that pterosaur-like wing. Basically, it has three freaky, really long fingers. <laughs> and if you didn't know it was part of a wing, you'd think like, oh yeah, it must be digging. You know, there's got to be some reason it evolved these crazy long fingers. But once we found this membrane next to it that looks like it was part of a wing, it makes a lot more sense that that's what was happening. And some of the other scansoriopterigids didn't include that last finger and that last wrist bone, hmm. which connects where that crazy styliform element juts out at like a 90 degree. So we don't really know. Maybe some of the earlier ones actually were like E and Ambotarix and had these big membranous wings to go along with their crazy long fingers. And another thing worth Googling, by the way, is the II lemur, <laughs> which they mentioned in the paper, because it has this really freaky, extra skinny, gangly finger kind of in the middle of its hand, actually. It's like in between two normal-ish fingers. Oh, yeah. We saw a taxidermy of that recently. Yeah, at the ROM, actually. And they know that that lemur uses that crazy finger for getting insects out of trees and stuff. So that's what they were thinking with these dinosaurs. But yeah, now it's like, man, it's probably a wing. But in the paper, they also mentioned that gliding isn't the only option for why it evolved these crazy long fingers and this membranous wing and this weird bone sticking out at a 90 degree angle because they could have also been used as a display structure or they could have used it in wing-assisted incline running or maybe something else entirely. And by looking at those long proto feathers up by the neck and at the leading edge of the wing, it definitely seems like that would have been good for a, a mating dance or some other sort of visual display. And we've got more new dinosaurs coming next week. There's, that's every week. <laughs> yeah. Stay tuned. In Highlands Ranch in Colorado, there were workers on a construction site that found some more dinosaur fossils, and the Denver Museum of Nature and Science said that it's a limb bone and several ribs from a ceratopsian. So paleontologists are now working to secure the site and then figure out the size of the bone bed. And I think it's in the same area they found a triceratops recently, in the last few years. So it's a good place for bones, I guess. Yeah, Colorado in general. Can hardly go wrong. Right. And well, also in China, because there's four college students that found a clutch of dinosaur egg fossils while they're on the walk in the countryside. The Chinese Academy of Science confirmed that the eggs were from the Cretaceous, and they're now in a museum in Pingxiang City in Jiangxi province. In some museum news, in New Zealand, the Museum of New Zealand of Te Papa Tongarua has a new iguanodon tooth on display. Well, it's not really new. It's actually... One of it's, I think, the first iguanodon tooth found. Nice. <laughs> it's one of iguanodons, one of the original dinosaur fossils found. It was found back in 1822 near Cuckfield, Sussex, by Gideon Mantell, or rather his wife, Mary Ann, depending on who you ask. I think more people realize now it was her. Mantell sent it to George Cuvier, who thought that it was a rhinoceros tooth, but then changed his mind pretty quickly after. So Mantell named the tooth Iguanodon, and Iguanodon was one of the three original genera included in Dinosauria. Yeah, and the teeth are crazy important because it's called iguanodon because the tooth looks like an iguana tooth, except massive. Yes, <laughs> except now we know they look nothing like iguanas. Yeah, it's cool that in New Zealand they have one of those now. The Milton J. Rubenstein Museum of Science and Technology in Syracuse, New York, also known as MOST, is getting a permanent 3,000 square foot dinosaur exhibit called DinoZone, and it's their first permanent exhibit for dinosaurs. It's opening July 10th. They'll have nine life-size dinosaurs, including a T-Rex. And one of the pictures, it looks like they might also have a Triceratops. Then there will be a dinosaur dig area and a place for, they called it a dino dodgeball game. <laughs> I don't know what that means, but it sounds exciting. Play dodgeball with a dinosaur? Or against dinosaurs? Or in a dinosaur costume? Ooh, that would be tricky. Or maybe just in a room with a dinosaur painted on the wall? That's yeah. probably the most likely. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyone who visits the most can tell us. <laughs> Washington, D.C. has a new dinosaur. It was originally built in Mexico for Burning Man for 2018. And this dinosaur's name is Ikiro. It's a velifrons, which is a lambiosaurian hadrosaur with a crest. And that name means sailed forehead. So it's got that sailed forehead. It lived in the Cretaceous in what is now Mexico. Makes sense, considering where it was made. Ikiro's about 30 feet long. Very colorful. The artist who made Ikiro, Maria Nella Fuentes, said that the colors are inspired by designs of Mexico's ancient... Huitol tribe, and Akiro is, quote, an altar to ancient times. Hmm. Yeah. So now Akiro's on the roof of the hotel Eaton, D.C. It sounds like after this summer, though, he's moving to somewhere in San Jose, California. Nice. Yeah. Closer to home so we could see it. <laughs> 
This next one's really cool. This network and systems engineering student, Esme Kramer, built a dinosaur in her free time. Took her about a year to build, but she was also working and in school. So it's literally in her free time. Hmm. She built it in her living room using PVC pipes. She said that they're cheap, light, and she could heat them to bend and fold around other pipes. So she built the frame around her. It's this movable raptor. You can move the head and neck and open and shut the mouth to make it look like it's roaring or chewing. (laughs) She does that in her video. And she says it's not yet finished. She might add some foam around the body, but it looks really good in the video, really smooth. Nice. I love a good dinosaur puppet. Yeah, me too, actually. And that comes up later in our interview with Brian Eng. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So thanks to Christopher, who shared this one with us via Facebook. There's a site called Quirky Berkeley. It has a page dedicated to dinosaurs that you can find around Berkeley, California. And it's like a treasure hunt. You see different dinosaur sculptures. In the pictures, there's T-Rex, sauropods, other animals. Also some dinosaur figures that have included defenses. Mm. (laughs) So it makes for a fun walk around the city if you can find them. It made me think we really do need to get a dinosaur sculpture for our front yard, though, so we can get added to these lists. We're not in Berkeley, but still. (laughs) Added to a list. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, Last, in Bozeman, Montana, Gallatin High School has just made a raptor, their new mascot. I think it might be a new school because the article said that the school's being built now. It's 50% complete, and then the rest will be built by June 1st of next year. So then that makes sense that they're choosing a mascot. Apparently that whole thing was a long process and not everybody wanted a raptor initially. There's one guy who liked mountaineers better, but now he's on board with the raptor, Mm -hmm. so that's good. And they need to make a logo, but they've got time left. There's already a raptor mascot. They should have picked a weirder dinosaur. Why not the ankylosaurus, right? Right. Nobody's the ankylosaurus. Or any of the famous Montana dinosaurs. Yeah. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, Mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. (laughs) Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Without further ado, here's our interview with Brian Ng. We're here today with Brian Eng, who's a paleo artist. Uh, I think it might be more accurate, though, to call him an all-around creative because his work is in many publications. He's beautifully illustrated many newly named dinosaurs, including uh, like Dynamo Terror and Invictarx, to name a few. And he also makes puppets, movies, music, so much more. And he's probably one of the most energetic people, I think, that we've met. <laughs> <laughs> yes. That's uh, that's slightly terrifying because I know, like, I mean, some people in paleo are like, oh, 
exhausting. So shit, I must be really wearing out myself. It was more that when we met you, you had like produced a book of all your ongoing projects that weren't even finished yet because there were so many to go through that you were like, wait, I'm working on this and I'm working on this and I'm working on yeah. this. And it was like every major unnamed dinosaur for the next couple months. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, that that that's my new my new art book, which I just put out for my Patreon supporters. It's all of my work from the last two years and a few older pieces, like kind of mixed in that like I couldn't not include because they're like good portfolio pieces, and you know not everybody on Patreon has the. I released a smaller art book a few years back, so this is like the new updated art book for my Patreon supporters. But yeah, I had it at SVP and. Um, just a, I, I find that having a physical copy of your work is, it makes a good impression. And it's just, it's, it's unf like so much of what we do nowadays is just in this like digital ether and mm -hmm. flows through people's media feeds. And then it's like gone from reality. But to me, there's something really satisfying about making physical objects and putting them in somebody's hand and be like, here you go. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. We love paleo. We bought a couple of your prints. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and you signed them too, which is great. Yeah. We wanted to buy one of your originals, but you're too popular. We couldn't afford your... <laughs> your Did I have originals pieces. at SVP? You had um, at the auction, or P not the, the auction. Picturing the, the past. Yeah, exhibit. the exhibit at the museum. You had some stuff. Oh. I guess they probably weren't original because everything you do is digital. So I don't know how you define original when things are digital. So at the, at the picturing... The past exhibit, those those were like nice, high quality canvas prints that were kind of expensive to produce. Mm. But I clearly marked them up too much because none of those sold. Oh no! I I do I do have originals too because I work. So my process is kind of half traditional and half digital. So the thing with digital is that in order to get a lot of fine scale detailing in digital, it takes a long time and. Mm. It never, to me, to, to like my eyes at least, it never has that like gritty organic quality that like pencil or watercolor or paint on a page or a board or whatever does. Because, you know, there's this like micro detail in physical materials that goes way down. So what I do is I draw usually mostly in graphite, but I also use like some watercolor and some art marker and some acrylic here and there and i'll usually work in like a grayscale or a limited color palette because i'm not actually a very good traditional painter it takes me a really long time to like finesse color layers with real paint even though i, I i'm practicing when i can at that because i want to do more like full scale wall murals and stuff like that actually wow. on walls but for most of my illustrations what i do is i, I work in grayscale in a traditional medium and then scan that at a really high resolution and then color kind of behind that or on top of that in Photoshop. So basically my finished color, most of my finished colored illustrations are a digital composite of a traditional piece that's then been colored and fixed up and finessed digitally. Wow. <laughs> How big are these pieces of paper? It depends on the final output of the piece. I mean, like a lot of little things, like if I just need to draw like one animal or like a little tiny scene, I'll do just like eight and a half by 11 all the way up to for the mural projects I've done, I'll draw on large format paper. So usually it's like a meter wide spool <laughs> of, of printer paper. And then I can, you know, pull that out as long as I need to. The, the most recent big mural I did was for a traveling exhibit called Savage Ancient Seas, which mm -hmm. is all focused on the marine reptiles and pterosaurs and a few dinosaurs and marine birds from the western interior seaway of kansas and um i did a mural showing tylosaurus chomping a big fish called zyphactinus in half and um <laughs> there's a there's a hesperornis which is a dinosaur so i could talk about it on this podcast <laughs> there's a couple of hesperornises diving in to like eat chunks oh, of those are awesome zyphactinus and little fish swimming alongside the the mosasaur so it's supposed to be like a whole kind of ecology scene and that so that mural is printed up i think they printed it like they didn't even tell me they were going to print it this big but i think they printed it like 23 or 27 feet long or something like wow. that for the exhibit but the original is eight feet long by three feet. So with with like big 
mural prints, you can usually get away with two to three times doubling the size without much loss in quality. Hmm. They then went like way above that, <laughs> printed it even bigger. And then I like when at SVP they had like the big banner print at the Treebold Paleontology booth. And, and I was like noticing digital artifacts and stuff. And I'm like, oh no, I should have fixed that. And like it, weird little issues. <laughs> yeah. So t- t- any size of paper I can get into a scanner is <laughs> what I work on. How do you scan the giant roll that's eight feet long? So there are large format scanners that usually they scan the same size as that large format printer roll. Ah. So like they're like a lot of these banner printer scanner combo machines like pretty much every like every fedex office has a large format scanner and you basically can you run big sheets of paper through it it you know it's limited by width but above eight feet long most computers have a really hard time handling that scan at like 600 dpi (laughs) it makes a really huge tiff file and the, the people at these like print shops that i've used to scan these things are like occasionally i could tell i'm stressing people out because their <laughs> computer is like chunking along processing this file and they're like we've never scanned anything this big this high resolution i'm like well <laughs> gotta do what you gotta do so that's part of the reason why i'm it's part of the reason why i'm like trying to practice traditional painting techniques too because above a certain size like mural you really just your best bet is to just paint it directly on the wall i think rather than you know people create these huge digital murals but in my experience when you're working small scale and then printing it up large scale the experience of seeing it large scale is such a different physical experience just in terms of like you know how you move your head looking around the thing and how mm-hmm. how the image looks in perspective when you're like standing in underneath a thing that's 12 feet high it has a very different effect than if you for example like are have it on a three foot by six foot piece of paper and you're even even when i'm drawing large format it's not the same as like when you finally see it on a big wall in front of you right it's like definitely a different physical experience and at least for me there's decisions that i would make differently if i was working small scale versus working large scale which is why i like with the my recent mural projects i like basically tried to work as large as i possibly could <laughs> before going to the digital side and then you know hopefully some of the bigness works when it gets made even bigger yeah if that makes sense yeah i can totally imagine that well the one i'm thinking of is your piece that was at uh western science center for the mammoth exhibit oh did you guys get down there yeah Yeah. we did (laughs) oh awesome because i saw the the digital version it's like um posted online somewhere and then we went there and yeah that's a totally different experience yeah because it's like a mammoth on top of you rather or mastodon (laughs) oh yeah mastodon exhibit yeah not mammoth sorry it's okay well i was was gonna get to that so i mean yeah i'm really glad you guys were able to get down there because you know, Hemet is not uh, very close to any of the other major city centers in Southern California, so it's a bit out of the way to get to Hemet. And I didn't, even living in California my whole life, I didn't realize that they had a museum down there that has, like, I think the largest collection of mastodon material west of the Mississippi. That that was the first mural I did, and and I... I'm glad that I was able to visit the museum and like really see see Max kind of like from the angle that you'd see mm. the skeleton. And like one of the things I did kind of in preparation for that is I went down there and I taped together a whole bunch of pieces of painting, like masking paper. Like you can get these big rolls of cheap paper at the hardware store. Taped a whole bunch of them together to make the size, a sheet of paper the size that the mural would be. And then I, me and their guy, Victor, who's like their their maintenance man guy, we like hung it on the wall there, and then I put a marker on a stick and started just like trying to kind of sketch out where I would want the head within the composition based on like you know the space in the mm-hmm. museum. That was a really fun job, and it was like a it was a nice opportunity to to collaborate with an awesome institution that a lot of people unfortunately don't know about. So I'm glad you guys are are spreading the word. Yeah, and I think a couple of the prints we got, you made for them too. The Dynamo Terror and Invictarchs are both for them, right? Yeah, so Dynamo Terror and Invictarchs are, they don't have much of either of them, unfortunately, but they really wanted to publish these because it points to there being this potentially really productive 
fossil locality down there. And what I got actually really excited about with that project was that they get beautiful wood and plant fossils from kind of a contiguous fossil bearing area also in New Mexico where they've got these beautiful plant fossils that show this kind of turnover in the ecology from non-flowering gymnosperm plants to these, you know, new flowering plants kind of taking over the forest architecture. There's all these, you know, early fig trees and, uh, and lotuses and different aquatic plants and all these, like you get this sense of this kind of tropical jungle or coastal swampland, kind of like what we have nowadays in the Mississippi River Delta or Louisiana, maybe somewhere between that and like Southeast Asia, like a weird hybrid <laughs> ecology. So it was exciting to like get to do a an early tyrannosaur chasing or about to attack a uh, a, a weird armored dinosaur in like a <laughs> late Cretaceous jungle swamp world. Yeah, it's awesome looking. I love that drug. Oh yeah, thanks. Glad you guys like it. Are they considered drawings at this point, or what do you what do you call your finished product? I guess an illustration. illustration. I mean, it's I mean, it's a hybrid of a it's a pencil. So, so like that one is pencil drawing, and there's actually some not watercolor. I used like art markers to do a lot of the plants because I, I realized that when I, I've done a lot of plants in pencil, but pencil has this like gritty. Uh, edge like hard edged feeling to it mm. it's great for doing like dry pieces of wood and like rock formations and dinosaur scales and stuff but i was i was realizing that with plants like they have this translucent softness to them because they're they're organisms that absorb light through all their tissues so when you paint or illustrate a plant it's actually best not to have really hard outlines on stuff so mm -hmm. i did all those those plants in on separate pieces of paper with art markers and then i kind of like built this whole jungle out of compositing all these uh traditionally drawn plants together and then you know doing little little touches of digital painting on top of them here and there to kind of like blend the whole scene together so i get illustration digital it's not just digital illustration i think is the, the best catch-all term <laughs> wow but it's a little bit of a collage too yeah i mean it's digitally composited so my my process for creating these illustrations actually kind of comes out of my background in animation i went to college for film and animation and um in animation school, we were using, you know, traditionally hand-drawn animation and compositing it digitally and doing backgrounds digitally and kind of like building these scenes. And that had some clear advantages to it over just strictly working digitally in terms of just the, the look and the feel and the expressiveness of the drawings and also kind of the speed with which you can make a bunch of texture and detail with graphite, especially for me, because I've been drawing in graphite my whole life, there's like less of a learning curve there than with going to a purely digital workspace. Being able to kind of like build everything in layers and kind of control how 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 detailed and how blurry and how light and dark the foreground and the middle ground and the background are. So yeah, that that piece is definitely kind of like a digital traditional art collage illustration thing yeah i feel really i feel really pretentious <laughs> talking about my creative process like you don't no, sound pretentious it's just no. really yeah. interesting and we know nothing <laughs> about this so okay <laughs> it's good to learn i wanted to ask so a lot of times with dinosaurs or paleontology in general i guess only a few bones are found how do you <clears throat> come up with a whole scene based on just a, a handful of bones so in some cases, you get lucky and the scrappy handful of bones animal will be closely related to something that a lot more is known from. And I've been mostly lucky in my paleo art <laughs> career, if that's the word for it, in that when people have handed me scrappy animals, there's they're usually like closely related to something that there's like a lot of nice specimens of. There's actually there if you go, I have a YouTube channel called youtube.com slash dinosaurs reanimated or you could just search brian ing paleo art and you can see videos i've created on the process of doing these different illustrations i've also done like a few live events where i talk kind of walk the audience through the process of reconstructing these animals the first dinosaur i was kind of professionally hired to reconstruct this way was a little early ceratopsian dinosaur called aquilops americanus and um it's a, a little it's the earliest horned dinosaur known from North America. So everything like Styracosaurus and Triceratops and Centrosaurus, all these big famous 
horned dinosaurs with giant frills and huge horns coming out of their face. They all evolved from this little chicken-sized thing <laughs> that we only have this one crushed little skull from, from about 112 million years ago, found in Montana. So at a time when there was no horned dinosaurs yet in North America, there's this little this little skull of an early ceratopsian. So that was a really cool story. But when all you have is the skull, it's, and people are like, yeah, we want to hire you to reconstruct this whole animal. Mm -hmm. It's a little bit scary. But then when you start digging into the research, what you find is that, well, you know, very often there are closely related things that you have more material of. And Aquilops is interesting because it has a bunch of Asian and a few European relatives. And the, especially the ones from Asia, there's like beautiful three-dimensionally preserved skeletons of closely related little horned dinosaurs like uh, Liaoceratops and Auroraceratops and uh, Archaeoceratops are all really closely related. And the cool thing about this, a lot of dinosaurs, but especially the Ceratopsians, is that their, their bodies are kind of evolving slowly and their heads are what are changing a lot. <laughs> so a Quillops has this, this head that tells us it's a early, you know, relative of the horned dinosaurs, but it, it's, its head is definitely a a little different than anything that's been found in Asia. Whereas the ones in Asia, we have their heads and their whole bodies, and we can see that the body really hasn't changed from Archaeoceratops to Liaoceratops to uh, Auroraceratops, but they all have like slightly weird variations <laughs> on like the, the early Ceratopsian head design. So, you know, you reconstruct the rest of the animal from hopefully from better represented relatives. Hopefully they're, you know, you know enough about them. And in the case of like the early horned dinosaurs, we do know a lot about them. Like we have, you know, multiple growth phases of a lot of these things. So I say we know a lot about them. We know a lot about them by like paleo standards. <laughs> <laughs> Our species knows so little about most animals. It's really sad, <laughs> but that's an aside. And then, you know, the environment scene that I did of Aquilops is all based on stuff that we know from the uh, cloverleaf formation where its skull was found. There's beautiful plant fossils. There's beautiful early mammal fossils. It was actually, this little ceratopsian was found while Rich Cefeli and Scott Madsen and their crew were out in the cloverleaf looking for early Cretaceous mammals. Mm -hmm. And uh, Scott Madsen is this amazing preparator who actually found the skull. Uh, he's also just He's one of these guys in paleo who is just a beast in the field and and an incredibly skilled preparator and has a deep kind of a deep quiet understanding of earth history and ecology and how life works and he and he stumbled across this rock that had a couple teeth sticking out of it and he was like oh that's cool he thought it was going to be like a little little dryosaur or something like that a little <laughs> ornithischian and then he he on his own time prepped it out and was like holy cow this is a little this is a little early uh, ceratopsian relative. <laughs> So talking to these different people who are involved in studying these different strata, you can start to paint a more complete picture of what the ecology and the landscape looked like. And unfortunately, a lot of that data isn't even published stuff. It's like stuff you have to either see for yourself by getting out there into the field or get into collections and see what is being collected from these different sites. And of course, like talk to the people who have been spending significant chunks of their life, you know in the trenches, digging these fossils up, walking across the landscape, thinking about the landscape. And so in the case of that critter, you know, I, it was great because I was able to get in contact with these different people who had been out in the cloverleaf formation and could tell me about like, okay, this is, this is the kind of plants we see and animals that would have been there. So it's, it's, it's a fun, it, I, that's what I really love about doing paleo art is really getting into that prehistoric world and trying to pull all the pieces together to flesh it out yeah it really shows the amount of effort you put into it because when there's the difference between me trying to read through a journal article which may say a little bit about you know where it was found and what was around with it or may just like completely glaze over that and say like you know we found this leg and this is the measurement of this certain muscle attachment point um, the difference between <laughs> a paper that has like an image you've created with it and one that doesn't it's like my understanding immediately snaps into focus when there's like a good drawing yeah the important thing is that when people see the thing they enjoy looking at it 
and they get something out of it. Hopefully in the case of paleo art, both like emotionally and kind of like a sense of wonder and interest, maybe even it communicates some ideas about science or how life works on the planet or something like that. Oh, definitely. So what about other mediums that you're making puppets right now for the St. George Museum? Can you talk a little bit about that process? So I got lucky because I was approached about doing some videos for exhibits at the uh, St. George Dinosaur Discovery Site at Johnson Farm, which is a a little museum built around a dinosaur track site in St. George, Utah. And so anybody traveling from Las Vegas to Salt Lake or from Salt Lake to Las Vegas or going from LA to Salt Lake, anybody going across uh, Highway 15 through the corner of Utah there passes through St. George. And if you get off at the exit for In-N-Out, (laughs) <laughs> you drive a little bit past in and out and then you go right. You're going to find this museum that's awesome. It's this amazing little museum that's built around a dinosaur track site that's from the early Jurassic period. It's a little bit older than the rocks that Dilophosaurus come from. And it is this just awesome track surface that preserves all these behaviors. Unfortunately, most people, when they walk through a dinosaur track site, they're not trained trackers or interpreters of animal behavior. So they see a couple footprints, they see some smushes and some smudges in the mud, and they go, okay, cool, dinosaur footprint. But they don't really understand, like, oh, no, that's actually where a dinosaur was swimming and then came ashore, sat down, put its hands down in the mud, and then got up and walked along the shore for 20 more paces before its tracks disappear. So there's like these little vignettes, these little stories and scenes all around this museum. So what I'm working on with them is creating videos that will be planted around the museum. And as you go around the track site, you can push a button and a little video will play on a screen and it'll show a Dilophosaurid dinosaur or a Coelophysoid dinosaur going through the behaviors that left certain fossils in certain places around the track surface and around the museum. And then right now I'm actually, I'm editing like a intro video for the museum. So when you, when you come into the museum, they show you a video and the video they have right now, they really aren't happy with. So I'm doing a new one that's going to involve all kinds of dinosaurs. And in part because of the limitations of computer animation or animation in general, and in part because I really like doing practical effects, I'm building puppets to recreate some of these behaviors. So right now I just finished building a foot puppet, which I haven't, I've only posted a couple still frames on Twitter and on my Facebook page. But if you, if people support me on patreon.com slash historian himself, they could see the whole process of creating this working foot puppet. Mm. That's basically a Dilophosaurus foot built to scale that works as a hand puppet so that I can create footprints and show people how these different footprints were formed around this track surface. And then the next stage is I'm building a Dilophosaurus head and neck that is, uh, it's, it's quite a ways along. I'm, I'm, I'm just getting to the point now where I'm sculpting the, uh, the, the external skin covering for it, which will be cast in latex. And then I'll also be building some small coelophysoid dinosaurs, fish, basically doing a whole, uh, little practical effects movie showing these early Jurassic dinosaurs swimming, fishing, walking on the shoreline, hunting, eating, being dinosaurs in in this place where we have direct evidence of the kinds of things that these dinosaurs did. Wow. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. I love too that you're doing that transition between swimming and walking because I, I think about that all the time. And the first time I heard about it was a stegosaur somewhere in the UK where they found it was like walking down a slope and you could see it slowly start to like lose contact with the slope yeah. and the, the feet start to stretch out and become more like scrape marks. And I was just like, wait a second, we can confirm that a dinosaur could swim by footprints? <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> That's nuts. That's so it, it cool. Really- it really is. So Andrew Milner, who's the curator of paleontology at the St. George Museum, him and his core volunteers have identified and discovered a whole bunch of different track sites around the St. George area that show all kinds of interesting behaviors. And they have tracks of pretty much every major dinosaur clade living at that time. And they, in one place or another, they have them all swimming. Oh wow! <laughs> so if you thought if you thought Stegosaurus in the UK swimming was cool, well, we now have theropods, 
there's a prosauropod site. There's a there's a early ornithischians that appear to be going in the water and swimming. So they've got kind of everything. Wow. They're dinosaurs. You know, they were incredibly diverse. One of the really cool things at the St. George Dinosaur Discovery Site is they also have direct evidence of theropod dinosaurs fishing <laughs> in the early, early Jurassic. What? So this is so, so Spinosaurus, and this is all published too, and I don't know why more people don't know about this, but it's fine with me because I'm getting to do all the illustrations <laughs> of these things. You know, Spinosaurus is from the late Cretaceous, mm-hmm. and there's some decent evidence that Spinosauruses were probably eating fish. At the St. George Dinosaur Discovery Site, you can see where coelophysoid theropods of varying sizes, from small little coelophysis or megapnosaurus-sized things all the way up to the lophosaurus-sized things, were getting in the water, swimming around, and then they have fish fossils showing that there were large fish living in this lake they call Lake Dixie. The mm-hmm. fish have, a lot of them are semianotids, which is the group that includes gar, and semianotids have these enamelized scales. So they have tough, oh, weird. kind of like armor scales. The semianotids that were living at that time weren't gar. They were A lot of them were these weird things, that lophianotoids, which they were like, they were plant-eating things related to <laughs> modern gar. Super weird fish. Uh, they also had big coelacanths, big lungfish, all living in this lake. And what they found, in addition to swimming dinosaur tracks, they found shed teeth from theropod dinosaurs that have the serrations worn off them. So, and it, it's not worn off by like erosion. It's it's worn off because they've been biting through tough stuff. So the only really logical theory is that these things are biting through these armored fish as they're getting in the water and actively, you know, swimming and eating fish, which I just think is super cool to think that there's these enigmatic theropods, probably closely related to Dilophosaurus, maybe even some new species of Dilophosaurus proper. It's kind of hard to say at this point, but there's these whole groups of dinosaurs that we only have tracks of But we know they were doing things that we wouldn't be able to tell from the bones. And we know that they were living a lifestyle that's totally different than what we assume for so many other theropods down the line. We know there were fishing theropods in the earliest Jurassic, like 200 million years ago. (laughs) Is there anything else that you want to share about your work? Oh, boy. Yeah, the other big thing is I'm going to be building a life-size pterosaur. Now, I know this is the I Know Dino podcast, and pterosaurs (laughs) aren't dinosaurs, but I got a dinosaur tie-in for you, which I'm really excited (laughs) about. It's going to be building it for the National Aviary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So there's this huge aviary that you can visit in Pittsburgh, which is full of living dinosaurs, (laughs) form of all these bizarre modern birds. And they're putting together an exhibit that's called Living Dinosaurs, and it'll be all about how modern birds are related to dinosaurs and the things in their skeletons and the things in the fossil record and the things in their you know, behavior and everything that kind of clearly show us that they are related to these ancient groups. There is also going to be at least... Uh, a little bit of information on pterosaurs too, in that they are, you know, they share a deep, deep common ancestor with both dinosaurs and birds as dinosaurs. Um, and also there's like convergence in a lot of ways between pterosaurs and bats and birds. They've all adapted to flight. And there are some really interesting adaptations associated with that, you know, convergent evolution of flight. So I'm building a life-size tapihara pterosaur that will be hanging from the ceiling of their like <laughs> aviary dome. Wow. So I'm really excited about that because it's, I feel like in most other contexts, I have to show people pictures of birds or video of birds to be like, see, <laughs> derived archosauromorphs are extremely weird and colorful and have waddles and, and crests and floppy bags and whatever (laughs) giant tail plumes and all this stuff i have to like justify the creative choices i'm making that are rooted in the reality of weird biology but in this case like i'm super stoked because my weird pterosaur model will be hanging from a ceiling surrounded by real life bizarre (laughs) weird dinosaurs so i'm pretty stoked about that nice so if our listeners wanted to find out more about you and your work where's the best place for them to go so the epicenter of everything I do creatively is my website, don't mess with dinosaurs.com. 
And then uh, I have a YouTube page for paleo art, which is uh, youtube.com slash dinosaurs reanimated. You can also just search Brianning paleo art. I'm on Twitter at Gray Griffin. And then if you are really hardcore into the weird stuff that I'm making <laughs> and you want to help me <laughs> be financially stable, uh, which ultimately means I'll just make more art all the time and better and faster, you could support my art on Patreon. So I'm at patreon.com slash historian himself. And then I also have another YouTube page. It's all my weird music videos and other art. That's uh, youtube.com slash historian himself. So those are the, those are the, all the, all the URLs. Nice. nice. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I, you guys have been fun to talk to. Thanks so much, Brian, for chatting with us. We had a really great time and so great of a time. We actually became a patron on his Patreon. So. Yeah. You should check that out too. You can follow his current work where he is in California right now as this airs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully we'll get a chance to meet up with Brian sometime soon. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now for our dinosaur of the day, Talarurus, which was a request from Dinosaur 4602, so thanks. It was an ankylosaurid that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now Mongolia in the Bayan Shira Formation. It was quadrupedal and herbivorous. It had a beak-like snout and probably snipped off its vegetation. Talarurus is estimated to be between 13 to 20 feet or 4 to 6 meters long and weigh about 2 tons. It had armor on its body and a club tail. And it's been described as having 5 fingers and 4 toes, but an articulated foot wasn't found. And according to Victoria Arbor, it may have only had 3 toes, like other ankylosaurids. Hmm. Talarurus is also described as having pleated spines on the armored plates and osteoderms with furrowed ornamentation, lines or grooves. But these were half rings that protected the neck, turns out. However, Talarurus had a long, narrow skull and a relatively small tail club, ribbed armor plates, and wide bones relative to its length behind the skull. It's one of the oldest known ankylosaurines from Asia. It was found in 1948 in a joint Soviet-Mongolian paleontological expedition. The holotype includes a fragmentary skull, some vertebrae, some ribs, humerus, radius, ulna, femur, tibia, fibula, and more, including some armor and scutes. That's pretty good. Yeah. Six individuals were found in the site. Another specimen was found in 1975 that had the top of a skull and a fragmentary skeleton. More specimens have been found since 2006. At least a dozen specimens have been found in total. Talarurus was described in 1952 by Evgeny Maliv. The type species is Talarurus plicatospineus. And the genus name means wicker tail or basket tail. And it refers to the club tail that looks like a wicker basket. It's these interlaced bony structures that looks like a, a wicker basket weave. The species name means folded thorny and hmm. refers to the corrugated, which are these alternate ridges and grooves, spines on the armor plates. Marianne renamed Cyromosaurus disparoceratus as a second species, Talarurus disparoceratus in 1977, but then in 1987, it was renamed as Malevus disparoceratus. Talarurus is part of Ankylosaurinae. It probably lived in lowland floodplains. Other dinosaurs that lived in the same time and place include dromaeosaurids, therizinosaurs, and other ankylosaurs. There's a skeletal mount of Talarurus at the Moscow Paleontological Institute based on the six individuals and a skull modeled after Pinacosaurus, but apparently that's not too accurate. And our fun fact of the day fits perfectly into this. It's almost like we planned it. <laughs> and that's that ankylosaurs are usually found alone, but there is some evidence that they may have lived in groups. So just like this find where we found six individuals together, there was a recent paper 
which has a title that starts The Dirty Dozen, <laughs> referring to a dozen ankylosaurs that were found together. And that was written by Attila Osi and others. And in it, they describe this area of 600 square meters, which is pretty big. It's about the size of the plot of land that our house is on. <laughs> it's like a normal California plot of land, I would say, if that gives you any sort of ballpark of size. And of these 12, it included six Hungarosaurus, two Struthiosaurus, and then four that couldn't be assigned to any specific genus, but are something within Notosauridae. And both Hungarosaurus and Struthiosaurus are Notosaurus as well. And the cool thing about this find too is that they're pretty sure they all died at the same time. So we're not talking about a trap or something where, you know, it just happened that these dinosaurs were being preserved in the same place over time. We think they were all together when they died together. So it seems to show that they got together at least once in a while. So maybe they lived together. It would kind of make sense for defense as herbivores tend to herd and things like that. So there we go. It, kind of, it might change the way you think about ankylosaurs a little bit if you think of them as herding animals. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any of our new episodes. You can also join our community on Patreon, patreon.com slash inodino, and buy some cool merch, bit.ly slash inodinostore. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.